but our purpose and what we need to ingrain in kids' minds is that they should be sticking up. It's good to be different. As a Christian, you should be different. Three, two, one, action. Hey guys, welcome back to Keeping It 99, the most edifying podcast in the world. And I'm here today joined with a very special guest, Father Luke Bechet uh, from St. Marina's American Coptic Orthodox Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you, Abuna, uh, for coming on the podcast. No, that's my blessing. I love podcasts in general. So, uh, and there's so many like Catholic podcasts, Protestant podcasts, uh, Eastern Orthodox podcasts, but we need more Coptic Orthodox podcasts. So, you know, this is good. We need more and more young people because it's the easiest way to reach people. Um, and video podcasts especially have become like the new thing. So this is good. Thank you, Buna. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm sure it feels different being on the other side of, of the of the podcast. Yeah, it's my first and not, not just <laughs> <laughs> Um Anyways, I just wanted to, you know, kind of talk about, you know, your story and, um, you know, how you've came to this point in your life. Uh, you were ordained a priest less than a year ago. Yeah. Uh, in 11 days... Yeah, like 10 or 11 days, it'll be my one-year anniversary. Yeah, by the time this comes out, uh, it'll be it'll be one year. So okay. congratulations on that in advance. Um, and I just kind of want to know, um, you know, where did you develop this love for God and this love for the church? Um, like, where did that kind of start for you in your life? Um, I mean, I grew up just normal childhood, everything. Nor- you, you don't foresee yourself as becoming a priest. So... Um, when I was young, my parents, we would read the Bible every night, which was something that made me love the Bible and have a relationship with God right away. So um, after dinner every night, we would uh, sit around, we, we would sit on the ground, just read the Bible, um, you know, sing like a Tarnima or something like a small phrase, and uh, sometimes a Synexarium or uh, Lives of the Saints or, you know, miracle books or whatever. So that, that instilled like a love of the Bible, a love of church, a love of God. Um, and then I had, thankfully, uh, Sunday school teachers that connected with me, and we spent a lot of time outside of Sunday school. So one thing I, I always recommend to Sunday school servants is spend time with your kids, not just in class. Have more face time outside of class than in class with them, because that's what develops a relationship. And thankfully, I had a really good Sunday school servants. But yeah, you know, um, I mean, same thing. You don't foresee yourself becoming a priest. I was living a normal life. I went to college. I was just focusing on, you know, having a good career. I got married, focusing on, you know, trying to re- retire. Not too old. Uh, most people want to, you know, retire young. And, um, and then, yeah, just serving at church. And then I was asked uh, to be a priest, uh, which was a big decision, of course. So kind of... Is that what you were asking? Yeah, yeah. So kind of walk me through um, that, like, time in your life when, you know, being a priest maybe started to become even in the question and then kind of how that process was and how you went from, um, you know, not being a priest, I guess, being one. Um, it was weird because, yeah, I just didn't force it. Some people would joke about it and stuff like that, but I was young. I was like, I got married when I was 29. And then w- before I even completed a year of marriage, that's when I was asked. So it, it came out of left field because I was like, you know, just uh, just married, so just focusing on <laughs> this new relationship. Um, and thankfully, when Ambi Yusuf, he doesn't pressure. So when we asked for time, he was completely okay with that. And it ended up being over a year from when they first asked us um, till the ordination. <laughs> Excuse me. So, um, 
yeah, we took a lot of time to pray about it because it's a huge decision. Like the course of our life was going to completely change and, uh, you know, pretty dramatically. Um, the way we were going to raise our children, the how much time I, I was going to have. Because, you know, when you work a regular job, you come home and that's it, you're done. You're with your wife and family and so on. But now I have to be out for service at church or visitations or whatever. So it definitely changes the dynamics. So when we made the decision, we wanted to make sure it was the right decision. And I talked to my father confession. Essentially, he said, and I think this advice comes from Pope Shenouda, where he says, priesthood is not something you desire or seek or request, but it's also not something you reject unless you have, you know, like a really solid reason, um, health reason or something, something solid. Um, so that made me, when I heard that, I was like, okay, I guess I <laughs> can't reject it unless I have a really good reason. But I was like, at least I'll ask for time. Uh, and then, yeah, I remember we took a trip to Egypt. I asked monks in the monastery like, just to pray for me and advice and so on. Um, because it's, it's such a daunting thing. Like when you look at the vow that you uh, take on, on the day of your ordination, you vow uh, things that, just so much responsibility essentially. You're responsible for everyone at the church, all the lost sheep. You have to seek out uh, after everybody. Um, you have to treat everyone equally, no partiality. So you're held to a very high standard, and then you're judged on judgment day <laughs> on what, how faithful you are. So it wasn't something we took lightly. It was something that we prayed a lot about and made sure, you know, we could, uh, not that you're worthy of it or that you can do it, but that it's something that, you know, God actually wants for your life. So kind of like how exactly, like what are some of the things that, you know, were going through your mind, you know, when you were asked or, you know, what were kind of like the priorities? What were the things you were thinking about? Like what is that, you know, what is the, the mind of, of Abuna Luke look like, you know, right before ordination? Well, actually, the way it happened is uh, there was a priest that came over our house, and it was just me and, me and my wife. And uh, he, he just said he wants to visit us, so we're like, yeah, of course, Abuna. And then uh, after the visit, like, was almost over, it was an hour in, then he just, like, sprung it on us. You know, he's like, I spoke to Satan and so on. And then after he left, I remember just, like, staring at the ground. <laughs> <laughs> like... Still not comprehending what would just happen. And uh, because it really came out of left field because, I mean, I was serving and stuff like that. But again, I just saw myself as so young and uh, inexperienced and, of course, not worthy. Um, but, yeah, again, all, all the priests that I spoke to, it, that helped out tremendously. Like they, when they told me their experiences, what they went through, how they felt, which was, you know, similar feelings. No one feels worthy. Um, because something that's beautiful in the Coptic Orthodox Church is no one requests priesthood, which is a good thing. Because if you look at the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, uh, even the Eastern Orthodox churches, what happens? Like, how do you become a priest? You join a seminary. You essentially go to college and major in theology. <laughs> so, which is fine. You know, some people are called to serve and they, they, they have a good heart. But then it can also, uh, maybe people just want it for the wrong reason. And so it's a natural way to weed out people that want it for the wrong reason is by, you can't sign up for it. Um, so yeah, I, I that, and that's why at the same time when you are asked, you're not thinking about it. And so it can catch you off guard, of course. Um, but speaking to the fathers, like they all gave us good advice and they said, take it slow. 
Um, and Big Yusuf, of course, was extremely helpful. He's a father figure to us all. Um, but yeah, we took it one step at a time. And eventually when we kind of like processed the whole thing, then you, you know, you, I met with Ambi Yusuf several times. And then after that, after you make the decision of you're discerning whether this is your, uh, going to be your life or not. After that, you choose the timing. W like, when can you do it? Some people are ready right away. They can just quit their job. You know, a month or two later, they can get ordained. We, we asked for a lot of time, almost over, yeah, over a year. And then after that is the location. So are you going to do it? Yes or no? If it's a yes, then what's a good time frame for you? Some people can't quit their job. You know, they have to give a six-month notice if, you know, if you're like in a really high position or something. And then the location, which church or city are you going to be in? So it kind of works that way. Um, so yeah, MBS have asked me to start visiting St. Marina in Dallas. That's, that, it's, it's honestly, it's, for me, it's very interesting to kind of see like, you know, what the mindset is like, because I, I find that with a lot of priests, it's, it's almost a surprise to them. Like I remember I had Abuna Victor on the podcast and I asked him about it. And for him, it was like, it was the same thing. Like he just kind of got asked. He didn't really know what to do. And then he just kept getting asked and asked. And at some point you just saying no becomes not an option. Um, so right. it's very interesting for me to see that, but kind of going back to like an earlier part of your life, um, you know, growing up in the church and going, you know, to high school, college, um, what, what was that like for you, you know, going through, um, you know, American, American schooling, American, you know, values and ideas and kind of holding on to your Coptic identity as you went through high school and college and, and so forth. Yeah, thankfully, I had a lot of Coptic friends, a good amount of Coptic friends in my school. So we knew each other from church and we were friends in school. So that helped out a lot. But not everybody is that fortunate. Some people go to school and, you know, they're, they're the only Orthodox people there. Um, actually, me and my friends joke about it because we went to a school for some reason, like right before we started high school, the area we lived in, they like did a, a complete rezoning because the schools were getting really packed. And there was like one school that was huge, um, but it was empty. So they zoned a lot of us there until the new high school was built or whatever. So we ended up going to the school that was taking people in from all over the place, like the inner city uh, children and people where Hurricane Katrina had just hit. And so people were there from like New Orleans and stuff. And so it became a really dangerous school like overnight. Um, and we joke about like, because so many people were, you know, being arrested. I think the year I graduated, it was like over 200 arrests or something. <laughs> it was a cr like a crazy school. And so we always joke about how like, how in the world did we get through that? And we all, you know, graduated college and so <laughs> So it was kind of a blessing from God. But in our minds, I think we just grew up with the fact that like, you are different. You're not supposed to fit in. And that helped out a lot because... If you try to fit in, you will fit in. It's not that hard to fit in, and uh, you'll be exactly like the world. But our purpose and what we need to ingrain in kids' minds is that they should be sticking up. It's good to be different. As a Christian, you should be different. And so we were able you know, to kind of stick close together, and church for us was life. Like uh, we, we did everything at church. We were always at church. We played basketball at church. Wednesday night was women's meeting, so all of our moms would go. We would go play basketball. <laughs> uh, Friday night before Bible study, we would play basketball, uh, Saturday, Sunday. So we're always together, hanging out together. So it's really important to have a good group of friends from church and have those friends be your main friends. 
Yeah, and I think for myself, like um, growing up in the church, I think one of the most important things to me was, like you said, like having friends at church, having that kind of like support group and those people that like, you know where their morals and values are. You know what their priorities are. You know that you all have the same goal in mind. Yeah. So to be around that is very encouraging. And it also, because you can still have fun with them, you know, it's yeah. not like, you know, you just sit down and talk. Not, not, not that talking about the Bible is boring, but yeah. like. It's not always going to be about it's that. It's not always, yeah. exactly. You know, it's not like a 24-7 thing, you know. Yeah, and you, you can, of course, have friends that aren't from church, but it's never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, there's so much that you don't share together that you do with, uh, you know, people at church. I think C.S. Lewis had a quote where he says, essentially, you can almost, uh, you can be an acquaintance with anybody, but you're not going to have true brotherhood and uh, like real friendship where it leads to brotherhood unless you share the most important values and beliefs. So, of course, you're going to be closer to these people that you share so much with uh, as far as a, a framework of how you see life. Like we, we believe in God, this type of God, this denomination. We go to church, we do this. So, of course, there, there could be cultural things, but it's mainly about the theological framework that we have and we share with people around us. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. So kind of moving on from, like, as you said, like the theological framework, moving into college. Obviously, college is, um, to, put it, to put it simply, a very liberal institution as, uh, as it stands in America. So how does, you know, you with your orthodoxy and orthodox theology, um, how did you kind of navigate that and the pressure that comes about from, you know, the liberalization of education in, in America? Yeah, again, uh, thankfully, like I, I had a good group of friends, but back then there wasn't like OCCM and all, all the stuff that, that you guys have now, which is amazing. Like, thank God for that, because uh, like I see it and I envy it. I, like I, I say, I wish I had that when I was in college. Um, but I remember when I first started college, I was pre-med. I took a physics class. Immediately, I loved it. I switched to physics. And then everyone around me was an atheist. Like most people that major in physics, for whatever reason, are atheist or atheistic or agnostic. Um, but rather than really like forcing me to change my beliefs, it forced me to question my beliefs. And I remember I spent like four years really doing hardcore delving into and studying apologetics, Christian apologetics, which is, uh, it doesn't mean to apologize that you're Christian. It means, uh, to give a defense for like Plato's apology. Uh, So Christian apologetics is giving a defense for why you're Christian. And I started really getting into that, reading, watching videos, debates, um, and it strengthened my faith. So I, rather than weakening my faith, I kind of use it as an opportunity to strengthen my faith. So we can teach uh, people, of course, to respond appropriately, to ask good questions. But um, but as far as like the lifestyle and the habits and stuff like that, you have to just kind of ingrain into kids' minds that you really shouldn't even be thinking the same way about fraternities and sororities and parties. You, again, need to have your group of friends. That's the most important thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and to, to go along that, like, when it comes to the friends, again, it's very important. But I think I find it very interesting when it comes to, like, you know, going into apologetics because it is a very um, deep field. It's very complex. The arguments are, you know, really stretched out, really written out. Like you watch some of these debates and some of the stuff we're talking about is just, it's completely like beyond like, yeah. you know, basic understanding of anything. Yeah. So how do you, how did you kind of manage that and, you know, not even get lost in your own faith? Because I think a lot of times, you know, people who go really 
into depth at apologetics at maybe a younger age kind of get stuck in all like the, the nuances, like the rituals, like the, the, like the very small specifics. Um, and sometimes forget the whole big picture of what Christianity really is. So how did you kind of, you know, balance those two things or did you balance them? Like, how did you, um, you mean as far as apologetics and, and so say the question again, sorry. As a, sorry. It, it's, it's like, how did you kind of go into that field of apologetics and really study it without getting lost in like the details and the small things and the nuances and the rituals? Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's a good point because, um, like the field of apologetics can go into really high end physics or philosophy or theology or so you you want to teach apologetics to to younger kids or learn it for yourself to a certain point but it's not um it, it shouldn't be the reason that you believe in god for example it can be like confirmation of our belief in god but the real reason we believe in god is because our, our experiences like we pray to god we uh, ex experience God over and over. The more I trust Him and the more I see what He does in my life, then I trust Him even more. My relationship grows over time with experience. Um, so that's how I can know that God exists. But apologetics is good for showing to other people good reasons that God exists. Like God, um, how can there be a universe that exists and there was nothing before? Like it just suddenly popped into being out of existence, out of nothing, out of nowhere. Um, like if you look at the Big Bang, it says four things came into existence. Space, time, matter, and energy. Space began to exist. There was no space. Time began to exist. So obviously whoever created the universe has to be spaceless and timeless and extremely powerful. And, and so, so apologetics does a good job of showing you why we have good reasons to believe. But you definitely can um, end up relying too much on the intellect and then fail to have a relationship with God. Um, so that's the more important thing. You want to use it as a tool, but you don't want to just become a brain without a heart. You still want to have that connection with God. And that's why it's so important to attend church. Like, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that uh, during the revival sermon, in anything that's good in church, you can be attached in a wrong way to it. So the Bible is amazing, of course, it's the Word of God. But you can be attached to it in a wrong way where... You're learning it for knowledge, just to show off, um, and you have no relationship with God. Hymns can be good, but you could just focus on the hymns, 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 tazbah, tazbah, you know, praises, and then not a single prayer is uttered out of your heart during that whole time. Um, serving, same thing. You can serve, and, and the further away from God. So um, you definitely want to prioritize and keep uh, the important things first. So apologetics is good, and a lot of these things are good. Theology is good learning more and more about the church and hymns and rituals and Bible and so on is good, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't negate the personal relationship I have with God, the prayer time I have with God, the time I spend alone, the time I read the Bible and, and so on. Like all the intellectual stuff has to be put into context yeah. of like having a relationship with God. And when you're young, it's very easy to go down any one of those rabbit holes. Like you can be obsessed with hymns or obsessed with reading or obsessed with this and end up empty. You feel completely empty. Like a book we were reading recently with uh, the book club we do back home. It's called uh, Churchianity versus Christianity by Metropolitan Anthony Bloom. And Churchianity was a term that was coined by C.S. Lewis, but uh, he used that uh, term and uh, wrote a book out of it. Um, and essentially what it says 
is instead of focusing on Christianity, now we have this churchianity where I'm always in church, I'm serving in church, I'm helping in church. During the summertime especially, we can feel like we're always at church. But then I still feel spiritually empty. I, I have no fruit. I'm like the barren fig tree. So now, like Pope Shunda said, I'm serving the house of God, not the God of the house. Um, and same thing, like uh, in any intellectual pursuit, whether I'm learning hymns or Bible or whatever, I can end up still feeling empty and not have a relationship with God. So how do you kind of co combat that emptiness? Because it's very easy, like you said, to kind of fall into that rabbit hole. And a lot of times I think when you do that, like I know it, for me in the past, it's definitely been like that where you feel like you're making progress, but you're really not. So how do you kind of, you know, combat that? Uh, I think there's there's different ways, of course. We, we need liturgical attendance and then you need private prayer at home. Liturgy is what animates, uh, meaning it gives life to your personal prayer. But you have to have both. We have to have prayer as a community, as a church. Uh, we're not Protestant where we believe you can just stay at home and it's, it's just me and my relationship with Jesus. It's, it's not like that. We're part of a church. God came and he founded a church. He founded the body of Christ. Um, but then you also have to have a deep relationship with God at home when you're by yourself. The doors are closed. You're in your room by yourself. And then you still have a relationship with God. You read the Bible. You pray to him. Uh, and then you, you have to have help as well. So a father of confession, a uh, spiritual father, is kind of like a coach. Like if you're uh, uh, going to do whatever, you're going to run a marathon, people will hire coaches. People want to lose weight, they hire coaches. People want to learn the piano, they hire coaches or trainers. Um, so you have to have that. Even if you're going to the gym, you can think of like the priest as kind of like your personal trainer, but he's not always going to be with you, right? He's not going to be watching you whether you're eating healthy or doing what you're supposed to be doing at home. He might meet you at the gym and that's it. You also need friends that will be with you maybe when you're studying or doing whatever. You're not at the gym with your personal trainer. Um, maybe you guys can keep each other accountable. You can eat healthy and work out and exercise. So that's the analogy of, you know, the physical body. Same thing with the spirituality. You need the personal trainer at the gym, which is the priest at the church. But then you have to have your friends around you that will keep you accountable even when you're not at church, even when you're not around your priest uh, or father's confession. Um, so it's, it's a whole diet of things. You have to have your personal spiritual life. You need the church. You need the sacraments. Uh, you need a father confession. You need good friends around you. So as a priest, how do you kind of elicit um, for younger people to kind of like go down that path? Like what are the things that, that you do um, as a you know spiritual father to them to kind of encourage them to go down that path? Like what are like almost like what is your advice to a servant to push? Well, everyone has a different starting point. Some people, maybe they uh, come from an amazing family. Uh, maybe some people come from a family that doesn't regularly go to church. So everyone has a different starting point. Um, but we want to provide services at church, at least, to keep people in church, to keep, especially the youth, young people, keep them engaged, um, give them reasons to come in church, whether it's midnight praises or a book club or a Bible study or, uh, you know, liturgical service. Um, and then you want to kind of uh, have them be part of a larger group, some people, you know, like maybe they like being by themselves. They, they might be monastics. They, they just enjoy that. But most people want to be part of a group. Everyone wants to feel loved and uh, like they fit in. They have uh, a group of friends around them. They check on each other. So the church 
tries to provide that as well, where it's uh, the church is the mother, and uh, it tries to make sure all, all the kids fit in in an appropriate way. Um, but people sometimes won't come to church because they, they feel out of place, or maybe they feel judged, or they feel uh, like they don't know what's going on, they don't understand anything. So it's very important for us to help people feel um, included. So what I try to do is I try to see the people on the outskirts, the people that maybe they come to church and then they leave right after. Uh, so those, because the people that are in the group, of course they need to be served in their own way, but it's, it's really unique to each person. It, it really depends on uh, what each person struggles with. And the church hopefully should be doing the best job possible to, to capture everybody. Like St. Paul said, you know, I'll, I'll be this person to that person. I'll be th this type of other person to, you know, uh, fit whatever I need to, to catch as many people as possible. And to go off, uh, like, you know, people feeling out of place or like what St. Paul said about being, you know, a Greek a Jew, to the Greek, Jew and Jews Greek, to the so, Jews. Yeah. It's, I feel like it, it mirrors what the church is doing, at least in America, um, with this, you know, the American Coptic Orthodox Church and, you know, how that's kind of almost like changing the culture. So you're a priest of an American Coptic Orthodox yeah. Church. So maybe you can uh, explain a little bit, you know, what is the difference? You know, why, why give it a separate name? You know, like yeah. what are the you know things behind that? Well, one thing, just the Coptic Church in general in America has done an incredible job compared to other uh, churches where some churches now, you know, they've been in America for decade after decade after decade. And they still have barely even translated some of their services. And they still do everything in the original mother tongue. Um, but Pope Shenouda, as a visionary, you know, had people translate things. Metropolitan Yusuf, um, since about 25 years ago, I think, implemented in the diocese. Sundays, like Saturday evening and Sunday liturgies, have to be primarily English. Even if you're going to do like an Arabic reading, like 20 years ago, you know, some of the churches would do both it would have to be repeated in English <laughs> because he was focusing on the youth, the young people. And Pope Shenouda always had that mentality um, that we have to focus on the, on the next generation. When it comes to American Coptic Orthodox churches, um, the theology is the same, the dogma is the same. And sometimes it's misunderstood as this is a, a church that... Um, like you come here just maybe because you don't understand Coptic or you don't know Coptic, but really it's because uh, you, you should be going there because you have a heart for bringing people into the church. And of course, every church should be doing that. That's why Metropolitan Yusuf rejected the term mission church because every church is a mission church. But it has an, but he calls it the American Coptic Orthodox Church because it has an emphasis on catechism, teaching, bringing people in. There are a lot of people that are in mixed marriages. You know, their partners have no idea what's going on in church when they first come in. <laughs> and so these churches try to make it a little easier for them. Um, but at the same time, preserving uh, the, the heritage and the rituals and the praises and the tunes, the teachings. Um, one thing that, that I want to do, and I got permission from Metropolitan Yusuf though, is for the younger kids, a lot of the parents want them to know both Coptic and, and English. So one thing we can do is maybe have a liturgy like one Saturday per month or something uh, where we do a lot of Coptic and we, they know the responses and the hymns and stuff like that. So they're, they're learning both midnight praises and, and both. Um, but yeah, you, you don't want to be dogmatic in either way. Like some people, 
They only want everything in Coptic and not a single word in Arabic or English or whatever. That's obviously wrong. We need to understand what we're saying. And then some people, they want only English. They sneeze in English. They cough in English. <laughs> everything <laughs> has to be English. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we pray are, aren't even Coptic. They're Greek, like yeah. uh, the Agios and, and a lot of other things. Um, but, yeah, the, neither argument is a good argument. Neither extreme. Like, for example, even in the Orthodox Church, the first liturgy wasn't a Coptic liturgy. <laughs> like, for 400 years or more in all of Egypt, there were only Greek liturgies. So, we, uh, St. Cyril, he took the liturgy of St. Mark, which was in Greek, and he translated it to Coptic, wrote it down, and expanded on it, and it became called St. Cyril's Liturgy. So, but before that, it was Greek. And all of the Alexandrian fathers, for like the first 1,400 years maybe of the church, only spoke Greek. <laughs> so I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't value Coptic and cherish Coptic. It's a beautiful language. And unfortunately now we don't understand it as well. And, you know, we speak Arabic in Egypt and so on. Um, but it, we should never be too dogmatic in any direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, there's been, obviously, uh, those two sides, those two, two extremes have been very loud and um vocal and very vocal when it comes to you know their opinions on you know where the church is kind of headed but like you said uh, right at the beginning is that the Coptic church has done a very good job with you know you know in america especially in a time and age where uh church attendance in general is dropping massively across the board i mean you look at protestant churches closing down failing uh, having to change a lot of very fundamental beliefs in order to try and keep keep up with the culture, but something that the Coptic Church has, has always been forever, you know, since the, since its inception was, was always, you know, like a straight path. I mean, that's what Orthodox means, a straight path. So, you know, staying true to the ritual state, staying true to the heritage. So how do we continue to do that as a Coptic Church um, in a different place like America compared to, you know, how it, how it is in Egypt? Well, that's where the difference between language and like uh, heritage and dogma and rituals comes in. You, you can change language. And we actually had experience with uh, in Egypt for the first 1800 years of the, the church. You know, we had Greek and then we had Coptic and then Arabic came in because, uh, you know, the Arabs came in and then we had to translate everything into Arabic. Then the Ottoman Empire came in and we almost forgot the Arabic and we were speaking uh, Turkish. We have some manuscripts that are Coptic and Turkish. There's no Arabic. <laughs> and then Arabic came back. And then, uh, you know, we went to uh, outside the diaspora. Um, now we have English and liturgies and a million different languages all over Europe and all over, you know, the, the world, Bolivia and so on, Brazil. So now we have all of these tongues. What's nice about Coptic, of course, is if we all gather back together, like in, uh, you know, if you're in Egypt or you're visiting, the Coptic unites us all, which is very nice, of course. And that's why a lot of people, uh, myself included, would want to teach our kids both English and Coptic. Um, but at the same time, changing language is one thing, and then changing the actual liturgical structure or uh, the heritage that we've received and the, the teachings that we've received, that's a completely different thing. Like one mistake that we can learn from is from the, the Roman Catholic Church. They have, you know how we have Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, the three ecumenical councils that we accept? They have 21. <laughs> and their 21st was in the 1960s. It was called Vatican II. It was the second one that was in Vatican City. Um, and that 
at, at that point, Catholicism was actually growing, especially here in America. The number one TV show, like around the 1950s in America, number one TV show, was Archbishop Fulton Sheen, uh, just a Catholic bishop with a whiteboard and a marker, and he would teach theology. That was the number one TV show in America. Um, and so he was, just him alone, was converting tens of thousands of Protestants to Catholicism every year. JFK was the first uh, Catholic president. Um, so Catholicism was rising. After Vatican II, what Vatican II ended up doing is they wanted to accommodate to Protestants who weren't used to very long services and long chants, like the Gregorian chant that they have in the Catholic Church, and, and a lot of these things, things that they didn't understand. The priestess facing the East, what they call Ad Orientum, and the Protestant churches that are used to facing the people. So Vatican II wanted to accommodate to the Protestants and make it easier. And so they made their services. They came up with a new liturgy called the Novus Ordo, which is the new order. No longer, um, it can be, it, you can do it in whatever way. It was mainly in, you know, the, the easiest tongue available in that country, the language available in that country. Um, it, it was uh, now facing the people, the priest faces the people. So, so many things that were done to modify, to make it easy to accommodate to people. And the exact opposite of what they were expecting to happen, happened where church attendance plummeted, Protestants uh, stopped converting, people started leaving Catholicism. Because now if you're going to make it the same as everything else, like if we make church the same as the world, I can just stay in the world because it's easier and it's better this. Like if I make church music, like secular music, secular music is better, so I'll just <laughs> listen to that. Um, so we want to make, we don't want to accommodate and uh, compromise on the important things. But language is, you know, something we, we don't understand, of course, what we're praying. We can preserve the Coptic, and we should, of course. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with translating and uh, praying in uh, the language of each country. And I Does think that make that, sense, the distinction, though, between the yes. language and the heritage and the dogma and the teachings? Yeah, and I think that, that that distinction is very important, I think, as well, when it comes to the heritage. Um, like you said, like, I really like the point point you made about if you just made the church the world, it's, you just stay in the world. There's no point in, yeah. you know, it's making better. that. There's no, there's no distinction anymore. Yeah, we can't compete with them. <laughs> yeah. And it needs to be different. Like when you enter church, it needs to be otherworldly. You need to feel like you're in heaven. So it needs to smell differently. We have incense. It needs to look different. It needs to sound different. We even act reverently. We don't chew gum or put our hands in our pockets because we want to feel like, uh, you know, this is different. We're being reverent. We don't run around in church. Uh, we don't speak loudly. We don't do certain things. Um, so we want church to be otherworldly. Um, the priest dresses completely different, the deacons. So we don't want it to be like the world. We want it to take it, take us out of the world and into heaven. Does that make sense? And liturgy means the work of the people. That's what liturgy means. Um, so uh, it's actually the most important human act that we can do is liturgy. It's where we come connect with God. We have communion. We commune with God. We eat the body and blood of Christ. Um, so it's the most important thing we can do. And we want it to be different than the world. So yeah, we don't want to accommodate or compromise on these important things. But language, uh, you know, th this is something that uh, St. Paul talked about where we want to understand what we're praying, of course. And I think that that point of like where church is different from, we want that to be a different place, goes all the way back to the point that we are different. You know, as we grow up, we are always told that we are different. As a Christian, we should act dif differently. We should, you know, 
just deal with others different, differently. We, we are different people. We're not just, you know, of this world. So, um, like a, like a very famous saying that we have in the church is, you know, like you're in the world, but not of the world. Yeah. You know, so you live in the world. I mean, you, you go to school, you have, you go to work, you, you know, eat food, you whatever, but you don't become like the world. You know, you're always separate. You're always different. Um, almost like a, almost like a different species, if you will, you know, being a children of God, we really like, that's our identity mm-hmm. instead of, you know, being a human or whatever uh, the world wants to put out as identity nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, John 17, the famous chapter where, you know, we, we call our father who art in heaven, we call that the Lord's prayer. But, you know, if you want to see how the Lord was really praying, John chapter 17, the whole chapter is Christ praying to the father, beautiful chapter. And he says in that chapter, uh, I don't, uh, I don't want you to take them out of the world. You know, they need to be in the world, but not of the world. So I don't pray that you take them out of the world. They need to be in the world, but they need to uh, not be of the world. So that, that yeah, that's a distinction, like you were saying. Um, yeah, and the saints are the best, uh, the best example for us, of course, where they're living in the world, or even if they're in monasteries, they're usually living around people but they live so differently. I um, can't remember who said this, but one person said, we all sin the same ugly way. Like we're all sinners in the same, the same ugliness, the same ugly way. But uh, saints are all beautiful in their own unique way. Saints are all so different from one another and they're all beautiful in their own unique way. But sinners are all ugly in the same way. We all have the same ugly tendencies. Um, so yeah, uh, we definitely, I mean, some people are called to be monastics, but most of us are going to be in the world. And at the same time, the way we're going to attract people to the church and uh, to God is by being in the world and being different. So as a priest, um, and as making this transition from being, uh, you know, not that you're not in the world anymore, but, you know, being, you know, working at a job and, you know, living in, like in secular life, life yeah. yeah secular life to that switch of living into um you know the life of a priest what are kind of some of the differences that you've noticed um maybe in your lifestyle the way you've had to you know treat others deal with others not to you know put you on the spot but um like how have you kind of noticed that switch and is it different really or is it you know you're you should you're supposed to act the same way whether you're a priest or not like what is kind of the distinction in, in one sense you know it's the same because uh, we always should be treating people with love and respect no matter what, whether uh, you're a priest or you're not a priest. And another respect, of course, it's completely different. One person ex- ex- uh, described priesthood perfectly where he said, it's one beggar sh- showing the other beggars where the food is. So we're all the same. We're all beggars. We all need the food that God provides, and we're just showing the way. And I remember right after I was ordained, a priest told me something very beautiful. He said, we simply need to be closer to the altar to go to heaven. <laughs> we just need to serve more than everyone else. And so God chose us for the priesthood just because we, we are weaker than everyone else. And so we simply need to be at the altar more and serving more and serving 24-7 uh, so that we can be saved. So it's a path of salvation. Like St. Paul says, uh, child-rearing. You know, being a mother is a path of salvation for women, one path of salvation for women. Um, 
and so yeah it's just a path of salvation but it is a different mindset of course where now you have to like you're responsible for everyone at the church where you're not before that if you're not a priest you're not responsible for everyone at the church um you view everyone as a you know someone that you have to be uh invested in and uh care for them not like you always go around saying my son my daughter <laughs> it's not like that like the way we speak necessarily but just the mindset of like how i tr have to treat everyone around me with uh, a sense of responsibility of course and that's that's the difficulty is the the value you take is so difficult of course but um but you know god provides grace <laughs> i mean i'll always say like the the priest is the hardest job you could have yeah, and, yeah, and if you're speaking technically, it's so different than secular life. Yeah, <laughs> like when I was working my normal job, um, part of it was from home. Like I, I worked from home part of the time, or it's just like you know, you finish your job, you go home. Even if you're passionate, but like I, I enjoyed my job a lot. Uh, I loved you know physics and <laughs> the stuff that I did, or whatever. Um, but it, yeah, it's different because now, of course, you're busier. You're just way way more demand than uh, an average job. Um, but you can still make time like, you know, they recommend you take one day off or just you and your family. Um, some people will take like Monday off after the long weekend or some people take Tuesday or Thursday off to prepare for the, the upcoming weekend. Um, so you can still find time, of course, for family or you should find time. And of course, your spiritual life is the most important thing. So you still can't neglect your spiritual life um, because of service. So you can't compromise your spiritual life because of service, because there's always going to be service and things to do. Uh, so the advice we get, of course, is to always prioritize your own spiritual life so that you can have something to offer to other people. And so it's important to uh, still have regular prayer times and Bible reading times and Bible study times where you're, you're not just reading the Bible, where you're studying the Bible, you're reading books, you're trying to fill yourself Um so the mornings, if you're speaking like from a technical perspective, <laughs> the mornings, unless I have like liturgy that morning, are more so mine. Like I, I can do whatever I want in the morning. So I, I like to uh, wake up early and just, uh, you know, have my time with God. And then after that, um, I like to every once in a while, I'll either walk around or I have a treadmill at home or I enjoy lifting weights. I used to play football in high school and I <laughs> lifted weights a lot. Um, but so I enjoy that. I have like a squat rack in my house and <laughs> just try to do, you know, some basic stuff. Um, so yeah, the mornings are my, and then I can read, I can study, I can do whatever. And then it starts to get more and more like communication where you have to set a lot of time just for speaking on the phone and replying to messages and emails. And then at night you either have like visitation or, uh, services or whatever. <laughs> a lot of soup was nice. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, and you know, Every every location is different. Every church is different. Every yeah. Um, Pope Shenouda was like you know the role model of uh, work ethic, and Metropolitan Yusuf is an, an amazing example. And thankfully, when I got ordained, it was in um, it was in a city that had several churches. Like Saint Marina, where I'm serving, is number eight in Dallas. There were seven other churches around me, um, all within thirty minutes, and uh, I was number thirteen. So we're ordaining the 14th priest actually this Sunday. <laughs> um, but I was number 13. So there were 12 others that I could learn 
uh, learn from. So the support system is amazing. Thankfully, we have a, a monthly clergy liturgy where all the clergy of the DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth area, and Bishop Gregory, who's uh, the auxiliary bishop of the Texas area, um, we meet on the, the second Thursday of every month, and we have a liturgy together. Afterwards, you know, we have a bite together, and then there's a spiritual word where, you know, one of us, we all rotate and have a turn. And then we have the administrative thing. So every month we're getting together, and it's extremely helpful as a young priest to have a support system like that. And uh, thankfully, Bishop Gregory, Metropolitan Yusuf, and all the fathers are very gracious. Yeah. So have you found it harder to kind of maintain your personal spiritual life, you know, having the burden of, you know, an entire church? Um, no, I would say it's the same. As, as long as you're like structured and you set time for it. Uh, now you have more people to pray for, <laughs> obviously, which is part of your personal uh, rule, personal canon. But as long as you're structured and you're still uh, setting time for prayer, then it should be the same. The, the problem is where things can become routine. And that can be whether you're a priest or not. But you, like I remember Pope Shunda said one time when he first went into the monastery, into the wilderness, in the desert. And he was like, finally, I'm going to live here forever. And he, he said, I looked at the sand and realized this is, you know, where some of the greatest saints over the last 2,000 years have lived. But he said after a while, I just got used to the sand, got used to the desert. <laughs> and then he, uh, he said something else, like uh, maybe the monastic garb, like I'll finally put on the monastic garb. But he said after that, you just get used to wearing black every day, whatever. But he said, I hope to never get used to. And uh, this, is, this is a problem that can happen in the spiritual life, as we get used to, and it, something becomes common, rather than being um, sanctified, and consecrated, uh, it becomes a common object or a common thing that we do, just run of the mill, it becomes routine and it loses the, the, the spirituality. He said, I hope the altar never becomes that way to me. I never view the altar that way. So the sand, the monastic garb, whatever, even if that all, if I get used to it, it's not a big deal. But hopefully, and he was praying to God saying, I hope the altar never becomes routine for me. And thankfully, the church has certain things that are set in place where it helps us not to. Like right before a liturgy is prayed, when the priest goes in, you know, we pray the absolution of the priests, which is a beautiful uh, prayer. And then there's something called the prayer of preparation. It's an inaudible prayer before the priest sets up the altar. You know, like a, as a deacon, you see that bag that's tied up with two knots, then three knots. <laughs> Uh, that system um, before you e even uh, start setting up the altar you pray that prayer of preparation and it's a beautiful prayer that talks about how unworthy we are to to be there and to pray um, so the church has these things set, set in place so that w we can uh, try not to make it a routine thing but every time we pray liturgy we realize we're about to touch the body and blood of Christ we're about to connect with God um, so yeah whether you're a priest or uh, not a priest, you can always have um, things become routine. And, and that's a struggle is you, you want to fight against that. And I think that's like part of the beauty of the church is that there's always a response or there's always a, you know, a solution to any problem that arises, especially like, like you said, sorry, 
like, you know, going into a routine and stuff. Like even as a deacon, you have, you know, the Psalms that you say on the way to church. And like the language that's in them is very, um, it's very humbling. You know, it, it makes you really feel like that. There's a lot of times, especially as deacons, you know, you can get a big head and a, a big ego and kind of, you know, think you're something that you're really not. And it's, it's always a good reminder to know that, like, when we go to, when we go to church, it's not about, it's not, that has nothing to do with us. It's not, it's not about us. It's about us meeting God, right? It's not about us, what we look like in front of others. It's not about, you know, what we look like to ourselves. It's not um, any of that. It's, you know, just us and God meeting with everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Because everything can become um, idolatrous. Like uh, we were saying, um, you know, I can be attached to sinful things or to people that aren't helpful to me or, or you know, I can be attached to a lot of these worldly things. But even good things, I can be attached to them in an, in an inappropriate way. Um, so maybe I'm attached to hymns, but then they're doing more harm for me. It doesn't mean stop learning hymns. It just means make sure I'm turning them into a prayer. Or I can be attached uh, to um, learning about the Bible or le learning whatever. But then that's drawing me away from God because I'm doing it to be puffed up and be puffed up with knowledge and so on. So yeah, I never want to be attached even to godly things in an inappropriate way. Um, but yeah, the Psalms are beautiful. Those, those are like my favorite prayers are probably so. <laughs> yeah. Any last thoughts? Anything else you want to say? Um, no, I just like the podcast and I think it's a, it's a good forum. Hopefully we have more and more Coptic podcasts because... Uh, it's one of the best ways uh, to get, you know, long form conversation, which is nice. Well, thank you, Buna, for joining the podcast. I know it's a little tight schedule, so I appreciate uh, you taking your time uh, to come on it. No, it's a blessing for me. What time is it now? <laughs> See, it's almost midnight. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys for watching. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, turn on post notifications and share. And see you guys next week. Thank you.